Welcome to Helping Challenging Children. This podcast is for adults who want to understand why children behave the way they do and how to support them to increase their ability to self-regulate and to become more independent. My name is Dr. Pat McGuire. I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician who and I have been working with these children for over 30 years, and I can tell you that with the right support, they all do great. So enjoy these podcasts, and hopefully you learn a little bit each time. Did you know that there are more children in receiving foster care services each year in the United States than the entire population of Wyoming? That is a scary thought, especially when we know that many times, even with receiving services, these children don't have good outcomes. I'd like to go over a recap of my podcast, Helping Challenging Children, from August 25th. I talked about foster care at that point uh, to give an overview of what has happened historically with foster care. Caring for children in need has been around since the beginning of civilization. Even animals have been observed taking in abandoned babies from their herd or community. Even sometimes animals that are not of their own species. It is a hardwired imperative in our DNA for survival of species. Somewhere along the way, society began to believe that children who are taken in by others should become indentured servants working off the costs of housing, clothing, and food. When they reached adulthood, they would be freed from servitude, although many would stay on as paid employees. While this was not always a good situation, since the employer may be abusive, it was better for parents than placing their children in the almshouse, which is also known as a poorhouse. This was the last stop for the most desperate members of society and include criminals and those with severe disabilities. Parents began to leave their children at orphanages when they began going up. This was considered a better place for their children than the poorhouses. When the parents felt that they could care for their children again, they would be able to pick up their children from the orphanages. The quality of care varied with some being fairly benign and others being sources of abuse. One major problem with orphanages was that they were institutionalized care. There was often not enough time or caregivers to provide the nurturing needed for the social emotional health of children under their care. Problems with development, learning, and mental health have been seen in children who have been institutionalized, both in the US and in foreign countries. After World War II, social service agencies increased the use of foster families as a means of providing more stability, more nurturing, and better physical and mental health of children in need. The goal from the start was to eventually reunify these children with their parents. This is where we still are, but we are realizing that reunification is not a quick turnaround of remove the child, Parent takes some classes or goes through some drug rehab and all is well. These children have been traumatized in many different ways. Their parents have also experienced trauma in their past. There needs to be ongoing help for both to heal and trust. When this can't happen, 
the child may be available for adoption, may end up with a guardian, or may eventually just age out of the system. Aging out is another problem since services when these children turn 18 become very fragmented. There is no national standard of care. Some states have programs for housing, education and employment training. Others only have access to Medicaid. This is where we need to focus our interventions if we don't want these children to become the next generation who has their children put into foster care. This podcast will focus on what is happening now in the US. And I'll be asking you to take notes so that you can then reach out to local, county, state, and federal officials to encourage more funding for the different levels of care. These children and adolescents didn't ask to go into foster care. They were placed in foster care due to events out of their control in their families or their communities, or even within their own development that did not allow for flexibility and resilience in order to work on issues while keeping these families together. In this podcast, I will cover why are so many parents struggling? How does the child's temperament play into family dysfunction? What is foster care supposed to offer? Problems with foster care. Ways children leave foster care. Needs for children aging out of foster care. Promising practices. And then I'll summarize. When we look at why so many parents are struggling, we first look at environmental factors affecting families. There was a recent article that I need to share with you. Julissia Batties was seven years old when she died on August 10th of 2021 due to a beating from her 17-year-old half-brother. There had been red flags throughout her life. In fact, she was placed in foster care at six days of age since her mother was known to be unstable. She had already had several children removed from her care. Julissia lived with her paternal grandmother for several years while the parents worked with child welfare agencies to take classes and other interventions required. During this time, there were still signs that the parents were unstable, but the mother was able to keep one child born after Julissia and have another return to her care. So when Julissia was six, she was returned to her mother. And then COVID hit and so did the lockdown. Being able to be monitored by child welfare was not easy during this time. Neighbors were afraid for Julissia since they heard the mother screaming a lot. They would see Julissia with facial bruises and black eyes. She was also sent out unattended at seven years of age to do errands for her mother in the neighborhood. The people wondered if they could, should call child services and someone made a call just a week before she died, but it is unknown if it was followed up on. Every year, around 673,000 children are served through foster care. During that year, 265,000 enter foster care and 250,000 exit the care. The average length of stay is 13 to 18 months. One asks how parents let this happen. 
Well, it's not as much as letting this happen as it is that life becomes too overwhelming for them. They are struggling to care for themselves and have nothing left to help their children. The main reason, reasons that children are moved from their biologic homes are due to neglect, parent drug or alcohol use, caregiver inability to cope, physical abuse, sexual abuse, homelessness, child behavior problems, abandonment, the parent may be incarcerated or the parent may have died. Neglect is the most common reason children are removed from the parent home. According to the most recent info on kiddata.org, which tracks children in California, neglect has increased from 71.2% of children to 87.1% of the children who enter their system. Neglect means not fulfilling a child's needs. This can be food, housing, clothing, supervision, or medical care. It also can be related to emotional well-being. Supervisional neglect in California was found to be the major reason behind child injury fatalities for those under age five, rather than physical abuse. Physical abuse is the second most common reason children are removed from their home at 7%. Sexual abuse accounts for 1.8%. 4.1% of the time, it would be one of the other reasons I have mentioned, and emotional or psychological abuse. Psychological abuse is actually considered the most frequent form of child maltreatment uh, that children experience, but it's the least used reason for children to be removed from their homes because it is the hardest to prove. It requires each reporting body to have a standard definition. Unfortunately, as seen in the 2019 Health and Human Services edition of Child Maltreatment, the reporting rate ranges from 0.1% in Arizona and 0.2% in Illinois, up to 33.4% in Maine and 62.6% .6 in West Virginia for psychological abuse due to differences and how it is recorded. The children and adolescents who are victims of psychological abuse are most often the ones who as adults suffer the most mental health and substance abuse disorders, as well as PTSD. Parents whose children have been placed in foster care are often going through family and personal crises that may have led to or contributed to the removal of their children. They may deal be dealing with drug addiction, mental illness, unemployment, poverty, and domestic violence. Most parents are consumed with feelings of anger, in deep denial about their problems, confused about their rights, and harbor distrust and resentment towards the foster care agencies that took their children away. To regain custody of their children and prevent them from growing up in foster care, parents need to gain the motivation and awareness to address their problems and learn to negotiate a system that has deem them unfit for parenthood. They must find their way through a complex system that often fails to provide the support that will help families reunite. Over 500,000 children in the United States currently reside in some form of foster care. Placement in foster care can occur for a variety of reasons. 
Children who are victims of parental or caregiver abuse may be removed from their parents' home by a child welfare agency and placed in foster care. Other reasons for foster placement include severe behavioral problems in the child, which the parents are unable to manage, and or a variety of parental problems, such as illnesses, incarceration, alcohol and substance use, intellectual disability, and unexpected death. Foster care can occur in a relative's home, a licensed foster care home, or a residential facility. And one risk for children is if they have developmental behavioral or physical problems. This adds to the stress parents are trying to juggle in life on a limited budget with few support systems. According to the American Academy of Pediatric, male treatment of children with disabilities from May 2021, three to 10% of children with disabilities are victims of neglect or abuse. The most frequently abused or neglected are those less than a year of age, when children in general are the most needy of adult care. About one in three children in foster care have significant problems in the following areas. Developmental delays, emotional problems, behavioral problems, or chronic physical problems. One area that can trigger parents is a mismatch between the parent's temperament profile and the child's profile. Temperament consists of traits of behavioral or emotional responses that we're all born with. Our traits are inherited from our families. There are nine traits based on the Chess and Thomas work from the 1950s and 60s. These are activity level, rhythmicity, adaptability, approachability, intensity of response, basic mood, persistence, distractibility, and sensory threshold. If any of these traits or combination of traits are a mismatch to the parents or to their community, the child experiences stress and becomes vulnerable to developing mental health problems such as anxiety, depression, and oppositional defiant disorder. The parents and community may see the child as being stubborn, willful, or manipulative, and react in a punitive manner, which only increases the child's stress and risk for mental health disorders. For parents who are authoritarian, the mismatch can lead to the parent justifying more abusive means of controlling the child, such as corporal punishment, removal of food, and even keeping the child in isolation until they decide to comply. To learn more about these traits, as well as the factors of development and environment and how children function, check out my course, Never Assume, Get to Know Children Before Labeling Them. That's at www.helpingchallengingchildren.online slash offers slash capital B small a, small e, small t, eight, small f, capital G, two. As I mentioned a bit ago, three to 10% of children with disabilities are victims of neglect and abuse. For many professionals working with these children, this is actually an underreporting of the rate for this population. Child maltreatment may result in the development of disabilities, which in turn, and precipitate further abuse. Abusive head trauma, for example, is known to cause disabilities in children. According to the anesthesiology clinics of March, 2019, between one in 31 
in one in 36 children under one year of age are victims of abusive head trauma each year. The majority of survivors have developmental delays, seizures, motor impairments, eating difficulties, and later behavioral and educational dysfunction. Only 28% have no impairment. The most common reasons that children, most of whom are less than a year old, become victims of head trauma are behavioral health problems, domestic violence history, frustration intolerance, lack of childcare experience, lack of prenatal care, low education level, low socioeconomic status, single parent families, and young parents without support. Acute head trauma perpetrators are most frequently the father or stepfather, mother's boyfriend, a female babysitter, and finally the mother. Shaking is often associated with the perpetrator's level of frustration and tension. The other forms of childhood developmental or other disabilities include intellectual disabilities, autism, genetic disorders such as Down syndrome, children with other congenital heart or other organ diseases, cerebral palsy, spina bifida, and children with prenatal effects of alcohol or other substances. All of these and other issues that affect an infant or young child may have lead to feelings of guilt in some parents, a sense of being overwhelmed and unable to hand increased demands of care, all of these and other issues that an infant or young child may have lead to feelings of guilt in some parents, a sense of being overwhelmed and unable to handle increased demands for care, medications, doctor visits, and or hospitalizations. For vulnerable parents who may have issues economically or who have mental health or substance abuse issues, they can reach a breaking point faster than other parents and they may not have the support systems they need to share their burdens. The environment a child lives in can either create emotional support or can lead to toxic stress. A study published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine, 1998, introduced us to the concept of adverse child experiences or ACEs and the lifelong issues in physical and mental health that occur from these ACEs. The authors had uncovered a direct connection between high levels of adverse experiences in childhood from birth through 18 years of age and the development of lifelong problems with obesity, high blood pressure, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, and cancer. They were able to show that the risk increased proportionally to the number and types of adverse experiences a child had. The experiences covered the following areas, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional neglect, physical neglect, mother treated violently, household substance abuse, household mental illness, parental separation or divorce, and an incarcerated house member. Having an A score is very common. According to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the CDC from 2016, ACEs are common across all populations. 
Almost two out of every three study participants reported at least one ACE, and more than one in five reported three or more ACEs. Scores of three or higher are considered high risk for long-term problems in physical and mental health. The type of stress that results when a child experiences ACEs may become toxic when there is strong, frequent, or prolonged activation of the body's stress response systems in the absence of the buffering protection of a supportive adult relationship. It has to be realized that a child's parents may have experienced a toxic level of stresses themselves through several ACEs. This will affect their ability to provide the nurturing parenting their children need. Adults who have experienced ACEs in their early years can exhibit reduced parenting capacity or maladaptive responses to their children. Children in foster care all have elevated ACE scores. In order to help them, there needs to be interventions which provide positive childhood experiences or PCEs. Studies have shown that children can be resilient if they're provided with the following. Supportive adults to listen to them and show they care. Feeling that there is an adult in their home that will keep them safe and protected. Feeling supported by friends and their school. Feeling that they could talk with their family about their feelings. Feeling like their family would stand by them in difficult times. And having access to an ability to enjoy community traditions. When you look at foster care, it's supposed to do several things. It's supposed to provide shelter and safety. It is a temporary living situation for children whose parents cannot take care of them. There are both private agencies and government agencies who share in providing housing that is needed. While in foster care, many children live with relatives, with foster families, or in group facilities. Over half the children who enter foster care do return to their families. When looking to house children, child welfare agencies first try to place them in kinship settings. This could be with grandparents or other relatives. There are currently about 2.7 million grandparents caring for their grandchildren. It could also be cousins, aunts, or uncles. There are three types of kinship care. The first is an informal care. The child welfare people are not involved with this. The parent has a relative care for their child when they can't, such as if they're in the hospital or overseas in the military. The second type is voluntary kinship care. Child welfare is involved, but it doesn't have legal control over the child. In this case, the parent is having problems and it is felt the child would be safer with relatives until the parent can get the help needed to be safe around their own child. The third option is formal kinship care. This is where child welfare has the legal control over the child while he or she lives with relatives or a foster family. Another type of care is non-related kinship care. This is where child welfare is able to place the child with someone familiar to them, such as a teacher, coach, neighbor, or family friend. The hope with this placement is to make the move less traumatic. These individuals do need to apply for a foster care license that can house the child while, on, while going through the process. When we look at traditional care, 
This is where an individual or couple take the foster care training and get licensed. They can care for a foster child for an undetermined amount of time or until a permanency plan is implemented. There's also specialized medical or therapeutic foster care for children who have significant traumatic stress, medical conditions, intellectual or developmental disabilities which require extra care. One type of foster care is called emergency foster care. Here, the parents are available for emergency placement for a short period of time until a more stable housing situation can be found. This lasts up to a maximum of about three days. In addition, there is respite care. These individuals provide overnight to weekend care when regular foster care parents need a break to recharge or if they have an emergency. 14% of children are housed in group homes and or institutional or residential care. Their ages range from 12 to 17. There are some differences between the two forms of housing. Group homes are community-based settings for adolescents who have not been able to find suitable foster families. Institutional or residential care is for specialized care for youths that have significant behavioral or mental health issues. They have more regulations, but also provide more care such as therapy to assist the youth with behavioral, mental health, or substance use disorders. About 40 to 80% of children in foster care have significant behavioral or mental health problems. A significant number of foster care alumni have been found to suffer from PTSD at a rate much higher than military veterans. Youth in foster care and adults who formerly were placed in care, which are called foster care alumni, have, have disproportionately high rates of emotional and behavioral disorders. Among the areas of concern has been the lack of comprehensive mental health screening of all children entering out of home care, the need for more thorough identification of youth with emotional and behavioral disorders, and insufficient youth access to high quality mental health services. These services can vary significantly from county to county and state to state. Part of the reason that children and youth have a higher rate of mental health and behavioral health problems than their peers in the general population is that most states don't have integrated cares, systems of care to make sure that assessments are done within 30 days of entering the foster care system. They also don't have a system of continuing to help youth that have aged out of the system, but who still need mental health services. There are attempts of varying levels by different states and local mental health agencies, but the need is also larger than the ability to provide services. An example of this is Care for Kids in Wisconsin. This effort was launched in 2014 and provides services for six counties on, in the southeastern part of Wisconsin along Lake Michigan. This area covers around one half of the foster care population in the state. That means that the other half of the state's population has more fragmented care as well as lack of access, access since there are more rural and small towns in the rest of the state. Treatment Foster Care Oregon, which was developed in 1983, was originally geared toward adolescents with more behavioral and mental health problems. It was an alternative to residential care. They now have programs going down to the preschool level. They train community-based foster parents on methods of parenting, goal setting, and handling consequences to infractions of the rules. 
There is a therapist assigned to the youth who works with them and the family frequently. The results have been promising so far in terms of antisocial behaviors for both boys and girls. While it's hard to tell if it is used consistently across the state, it has been replicated in other states and around the world. Children in foster care uh, also need uh, sufficient physical health coverage because of concern, concerns with attention deficit disorder, hearing impairments, vision issues, learning disabilities, developmental delays, asthma, obesity, speech problems, and activity limitations. These are all more um, prevalent in the foster care population than in the general population. Foster parents frequently decide who the primary care physician will be unless the social worker and the biologic parents demand that the original physician or physicians are used. For most healthcare problems, this is not an issue, but for children with hearing, vision, asthma, obesity, speech, and activity limitations, it would be more important to use the original providers or find equivalent providers. Children in foster care are also twice as likely as their peers to have learning disabilities. Since each school district may have different systems to determine when students qualify for special education, it's important for foster parents and social workers assigned to them to be advocates for continuation of an IEP until a new comprehensive evaluation is done. This will, deserve, this will determine the amount of progress that has been made since the last IEP and if there are any new needs. It's also important to encourage the school to use a trauma-informed care plan for these children. They are at higher risk of having and or developing mental health disorders due to their LD and home situations that they left. They will also be more insecure in their foster placement, which will cause them to be more hypervigilant to perceived threats, either physical or psychological. Children in foster care will average one to two placements per year. The longer they're in foster care, the less likely it is that they'll be reunited with their birth parents. The children who have the least number of placements are in the system for less than a year. Most of these are children less than two years of age. Children are moved often for the following reasons. Sometimes the foster parents move and are no longer in the service area of the foster care agency. Sometimes children need to be moved due to allegations or evidence of abuse by the foster parents. The foster parents may have too many children to meet the needs of a, a particular foster child. And some foster children who've experienced physical and or sexual abuse have too much emotional instability to be handled by a foster parent, especially with other children in the home. Sometimes the caseworker leaves that disrupts communication between the foster parent and the agency. And some foster parents feel it is up to the child to adapt to the home without support from them. This is an important problem that foster children have since each change is a new stress or trauma for them. It is harder to feel safe and supported. It's more likely they will decompensate emotionally. It has also been shown to negatively affect their ability to learn. The American Academy of, Pe Academy of Pediatrics published a report, Fostering Health, Health Care for Children, Adolescents in Foster Care, second edition in 2005. This report defined the components of services and care coordination that would provide foster children with the quality care they need. This is built upon collaborative work of the AAP with the Child Welfare League in 1998, 
which yielded the standards for healthcare services for children in out-of-home care. The parameters for care for these children were for a comprehensive level of healthcare service, including preventative healthcare, care for acute and chronic illnesses, a full range of mental health care services, developmental evaluations and services, evaluations for child abuse and neglect, after hours care, emergency care, and dental care. Assessments needed to be done during the initial 30 days of placement. The reality, however, is that services are overloaded and for many specialty assessments, the waiting period may be months. There is not a separate care track for children in foster care compared to the general, general population. So it is first come, first served, even in university settings. Another concern is that even in foster care, these children are still at risk for abuse. Children are not always safe in foster homes. According to an article in Youth Today from 2017, one third of children in foster care in Oregon and Washington state had experienced abuse by the foster parent or other adult. It did not look at the number of children abused by other children in the home, so the numbers could be higher. A study in New York City in 2012 and reported on by Psychology Today noted that 28% had been abused. The article went on about the report that a former foster child felt that this was a significant underreporting since she found that nine out of 10 other former foster children she talked to also experienced abuse in their foster homes. This doesn't mean that all foster homes and foster parents are bad. It more likely reflects the problem, not enough foster parents. So the system has to stretch its qualifications in order to be able to approve some adults who really shouldn't have been foster parents. Other problems which foster children may have would be if they are in large settings like group homes, or especially if they're on residential settings. Studies are showing that these youth do worse academically and are more likely to drop out of school than if they were placed in a foster home. Very likely, this is also due to the inability of the staff to provide enough one-on-one -on -one support and to rely on systems of expectations and consequences for behavioral control instead. An added stress for children is the feelings of sadness with the separation from their families. They often struggle because of the pain they feel being separated. This occurs even when they are victims of neglect or abuse in the home setting. A child who has been abused frequently develops what's called trauma bonding. They believe that the parent is doing what is considered loving attention and they don't wanna lose it. This is much like Stockholm syndrome people who were held prisoner or were subject to abuse, and they get feelings of sympathy or positive feelings toward their captor. This seems to happen over days, weeks, months, or years of captivity and close contact with the captor. A bond can grow between the victim and the captor, or in this case, the parent and the child. This can lead to kind treatment and less harm from the abuser than as they might also create a positive bond with their victims. Someone who has Stockholm Syndrome might have confusing feelings toward the abuser, including love, sympathy, empathy, and a desire to protect them. These are survival mechanisms that are put in place in the brain to increase the chance of survival. It is seen in survivors of Stockholm Syndrome and abused children 
when some key pieces are in place. These include being in an emotionally charged situation for a long time, being in a shared space with the parent with poor conditions like not enough food or it's physically uncomfortable, when the children are dependent on the parent for basic needs, when threats to life are not carried out, and when children haven't been dehumanized. There is also the pain of separation from siblings and other family members. Currently, 65% of foster children are separated from their siblings due to housing issues. When we look at how children leave foster care, the main thing that uh, is focused on is the ability to create reunification. This is the ultimate goal when a child is removed. Reports show that this occurs in seven out of 10 cases, but one in 14 of these children will re-enter foster care within 12 months. The most common reasons that reunification doesn't work out are being placed in kinship care, spending longer time in care or experiencing more placements, being African-American, having health, mental health, or behavioral problems in the child, coming from a single parent family, or receiving an initial placement in a group home or emergency shelter. If a child is not re reunited with their family, another option might be guardianship. This is where a one in 10 will end up in a guardianship setting. It could be a relative, such as a grandparent. The child still has a legal connection to his parents, but the guardian makes all the decisions regarding the child. This will be a lot like a foster home setting in that the child is in a family home, which will provide safety, support, and hopefully be emotionally nurturing. Guardianship is a legal relationship between an adult and the child in their care. The guardian has legal authority to make important decisions about the child's future. This may include decisions about their education, medical needs, shelter, and more. Guardianship is not adoption. Unlike adoption, guardianship transfers rights to the guardians, but parents' rights are not terminated. Typically, parents are still allowed visitation and may be obligated to financially support their child. Guardianship is important for a child when there are issues where a parent is not able to raise a child. Often when safe and willing relatives step forward, Child Protective Services does not become involved. Having a legal guardianship will ensure that the needs of the child are met while the parents are unable to make those decisions. Under the law, there are four types of guardianship. Emergency, where the guardian's authority is limited to the required decisions to resolve the emergency. And this usually is less than 60 days in duration. Uh, this can be used when there's a medical or surgical emergency and the parent is not available or able to consent. Temporary guardianship. This is based on the ability of the parent to provide care and custody and control for a temporary period. It's limited to 180 days, but it can be extended for an additional 180 days if good cause is shown. This is used if the parent can't care for the child that's not expected to be more than six months to one year. For example, this could be when a parent is undergoing medical treatment or is in jail. Another type is limited guardianship. There are certain decisions that they can make if the parent needs help caring for the child. So the parents will still have some decision-making powers. 
The guardianship also allows for shared physical custody between the parent and the guardian. The court sets a time period for this. Uh, routine medical and educational decisions may be transferred to the guardian if the parent needs help caring for the child, but the parent keeps other decision-making abilities. The last is full guardianship. This lasts until the child turns 18 and includes full legal authority to make decisions for the child if the child's parents are unfit, unwilling, or unable to care for the child, or there are other compelling factors. This may be needed if the parents are deceased or have abandoned the child, or if the temporary arrangements have been tried and failed. Another avenue through which children leave the foster care system is if they're adopted. Around one in four children will indeed be adopted. According to the US Department of Health and Human Services, on any given day, over 437,000 children are in the foster care system and the number's been rising. 125,000 are eligible for adoption and they will wait on average four years for an adoptive family. More than 69,000 youth in foster care live in institutions, group homes, or other environments instead of with a family. In 2018, 56% of the children who left foster care were reunited with their families or living with a relative. 25% were adopted. Over 61,000 children and youth who were adopted in 2018 found that 51% were adopted by their foster parents, 35% by a relative, and 29 or 26% were nine years of age or older. Of the families who adopted children from foster care, 68% were married couples, 25% were single females, 3% were single males, and 3% were unmarried couples. 93% of the parents rely on adoption subsidies and or vital post-adoptive services to help meet the children's varied and co often costly needs. The last way a child may leave foster care is by aging out. And that's usually at the, at the age of 18. This can be a problem for many since not all counties or even states have programs to support these youth. Almost one in five will be homeless immediately. Seven out of 10 girls will end up pregnant before they turn 21. Three out of five will end up in the sex industry. Four out of five will deal with PTSD. And four out of five will deal with significant mental health issues compared to non-foster youth, which are at about one in five. Also 70% of children in the juvenile justice system have a history of being in foster care. According to the National Foster Youth Institute, for every youth who ages out of the system without supports to help them address the above issues, our society will end up spending an average of $300,000 between public assistance, incarceration, and lost wages to support the economy. Estimating that 26,000 youth age out each year, that equals to $7.8 billion. And that is just for that one year. By spending even $2 billion on extended foster care so that adolescents can finish high school, enter college or a trade school, and have mental health care when he or she needs it, we can save lives in almost $6 billion a year. When looking at how all of this is funded, there are several avenues, and most of it's from the health care financing that's already in place.
Medicaid is a federally mandated entitlement program authorized through Title IX of the Social Security Act. In 2000, it accounted for 10% of all federal child welfare money. According to the Child Welfare Financing Breakdown for 2016, however, the Medicaid funds accounted anywhere from zero to 59% of federal dollars spent um, depending on the state. There are 12 states that don't use any funding. Wisconsin, for example, has repeatedly refused to expand Medicaid, which will allow them more federal matching. Another way is extended foster care. The John H. Chaffee Foster Care Independence Act of 1999 provided states with flexible funding to help young people ages 18 to 21 who are transitioning from foster care. At this point, only 26 states use the funds. Additional funding was provided through a family first prevention services, which I will discuss a little bit later. The National Foster Youth Institute is another source uh, to help us understand what works and what different states should uh, try to implement. Their aim is to transform the child welfare system by building a national grassroots movement led by foster youth and their family. Truly transformative foster care reform will not come to fruition unless the individuals who have personal experience are leading the effort to develop and design needed policy changes and progress. Another promising practice that is available but not utilized as much as it could be is rapid rehousing. This provides short-term rental assistance and services. The goals are to help people obtain housing quickly, increase self-sufficiency, and stay housed. It is offered without preconditions, so there's no need to prove employment, income, absence of a criminal record or sobriety. And the resources and services provided are typically tailored to the needs of the person. Another program that is very useful during the, the plans to reunite families is Parents Anonymous. They have four guiding principles and they form the basis of all organizational initiatives. One is meaningful parent leadership where parents are effective and needed leaders who shape the direction of their families, policies, programs, and communities. Effective mutual support, parents give and receive support from each other, thereby creating a strong sense of community, belonging, and trust. Successful shared leadership, where parents and staff build successful partnerships to share responsibility, expertise, and leadership to strengthen families and improve services and community and long-term personal growth and change. This is where parents, children, and youth transform their attitudes, their new behaviors, and build on their strengths to make long-term positive changes in their lives. As a comprehensive family strengthening program, all children and youth of the Parents Anonymous group attend weekly meetings with their children and youth groups also meeting at the same time. They use the focus of working to improve self-esteem, problem-solving skills, enhance well-being, and create leadership opportunities for personal growth and development. An important, uh, relatively new uh, funding source is the Family First Prevention Services Act, or FFPSA. And in 2018, this was the first major overhaul of the child welfare system 
and it came with the passing and presidential signing of this act. This allows Title IV-E funding under the Social Security Act, which previously could only be used to pay for foster care services, adoption services, and assistance to kin guardians, now to be used to prevent children from entering foster care. Specifically, funding can be used for 12 months of mental health, substance abuse, and in-home skills, skills-based parenting services to parents whose children would be candidates for foster care including children in voluntary kinship placements and children of pregnant and or parenting teens in foster care. Generally, FFPSA does not fund child maltreatment prevention. Rather, it specifically seeks to prevent, seeks to prevent foster care, largely by enhancing services for families where child maltreatment has already occurred. Key provisions of prevention services funding includes at least half of the funding must be spent on evidence-based programs. Approved programs can target any number of outcomes and need not be shown to prevent child maltreatment. Title IV-E funds are a partial reimbursement of state expenditures, meaning the states may not receive any additional funds under this law unless they choose to increase or reallocate their funding. Title IV-E funds are payer of last resort, meaning that any service covered by Medicaid, which does cover many mental health, substance abuse, and other treatment uh, plans, cannot be counted towards states matched expenditures. These funds are not meant to be used for residential settings since that, since that is more expensive than home-based foster care. FFPSA includes several provisions that greatly affect family foster care homes, including a major effort to standardize foster parent and foster home requirements across states. The law directed the Administration for Children and Families to identify model licensing standards for foster family homes to increase uniformity across states and reduce barriers to recruiting foster and kinship caregivers. The National Model Foster Family Home Licensing Standards were issued in 2019, and they were based on recommendations developed by the American Bar Association, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, Generations United, and the National Association for Regulatory Administrations. States are required to adhere to these standards. This is going to be very important since around the country, the standards of care vary so much, and the oversight is also a problem, including having too many cases for any one caseworker. States can compete for up to $8 million in grants to support recruiting and retaining foster parents. A maximum of six children are allowed in a foster home, although exceptions do apply. Funding is provided to improve interstate foster care placements for children. This is important because if a family moves out of an agency's location, the children are often moved to a new home, which can be very disruptive. Being able to stay with a happy foster family can indeed help a child. To summarize, foster care has been around for a long time under different labels and run by different groups. Originally, the focus was on providing safe and secure housing while the parents worked to deal with their issues. 
Reunification has always been the goal, but in order to do this, there needs to be many changes in our current system. Large-scale reductions in the use of foster care and the racial and socioeconomic disparities therein are likely safely accomplished only by preventing child maltreatment. This requires prolonged and coordinated investments in addressing overall rates of social and racial disparities, such as teen parenthood, incarceration, and the use of harsh discipline, as well as, well as economic problems such as poverty, low employment, and housing insecurity. These are circumstances that precipitate child abuse and especially neglect. Such responsibility cannot and should not be borne by the underfunded and crisis-oriented child welfare system. There needs to be a greater focus on prevention by working to decrease poverty, increase mental health and parenting services, and availability of services, decriminalizing drug abuse and increase educational assistance for students who are struggling to learn. Moreover, even if successful, such efforts are unlikely to replace the need for foster care, but the numbers will greatly drop. To best understand what foster children themselves see as needs to increase their chances for a healthy adulthood, you should read Building the Path Forward for Change in the Child Welfare Systems. This was sponsored by the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute's Foster Care Internship, Internship Program of 2021. It was published in July of 2021, in fact. The report included the following recommendations by foster care alumni. This includes maintain sibling relationships in and after foster care by requiring post-adoption contact agreements for siblings, ensure tribal youth maintain family and tribal connections and are actively provided with opportunities and support to reunite with family by requiring states to provide and finance active efforts to prevent the breakup of American Indian and Alaska Native families as a condition of child welfare funding under Title IV-E, address housing barriers to keep siblings together by creating a housing fund for states to cover eligible expenses for kin and non-kin foster families who do not have enough space in their current housing situation to meet the federal and state requirements to keep siblings together, increase mental health supports for youth aging out of foster care by requiring a mental health screening be conducted 60 days before the youth age out of foster care by trauma-informed professionals, requiring child welfare professionals be trained in the National Adoption Competency Mental Health Training Initiative, ensuring Medicare covers individual therapy and telehealth therapy services for current and former foster youth, and ma mandating that the National Youth and Training Database measure trauma and healing outcomes, better address maltreatment in foster care by offering state incentives to encourage implementation of an independent foster youth-specific ombudsman who collects and reports data and policy recommendations publicly and improving data collection through survey questionnaires on maltreatment and foster care, 
create trauma-informed schools and provide educators with the skills, the tools they need to help students heal from the traumas they have experienced in foster care by offering funding for in-service training on trauma-informed support, recruitment and retainment of school counselors, social workers, and psychologists, and innovative strategies to ensure that trauma-informed skills and knowledge are effectively integrated into the hiring process in school districts with a high concentration of Black youth in foster care, increase access to advanced degree programs for current and former foster youth by providing federal funding to statewide nonprofit organizations that offer support services to foster youth pursuing advanced degrees and collecting data and research on the number and outcomes of current and former foster youth pursuing advanced degrees, strengthen child welfare to meet the needs of tribal youth by establishing an advisory board of tribal youth, elders, and other community representatives to develop effective strategies in order to address race equality and the disproportionate representation of indigenous children and youth in the child welfare system, as well as collecting and analyzing data on tribal foster youth in the child welfare system, ensuring foster youth have access to their social security benefits by prohibiting state agencies from taking more than one third of a foster child's SSI and OASDI benefits for food and clothing, requiring that the child's parents, guardians, or caregivers be notified annually if an agency is taking the child's social security benefits, requiring states to disclose their practices for how they notify children when states are taking their benefits, strength support, strengthen support and services for pregnant and parenting youth, which are called PPY, in foster care by implementing a nationwide program similar to LA County's Expectant and Parenting Youth Conference, directing the Department of Health and Human Services to issue guidance to child welfare agencies on how to train staff on the needs of PPY and their children, and passing the Universal Child Care and Early Learning Act of 2021, which prioritizes eligibility for PPY in foster care for subsidized child care, and address the adultification adultification of black girls in foster care by requiring HHS to collect and disaggregate adoption and foster care data by race or ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and gender identity, and request the Government Accountability Office or GAO to examine the treatment of black girls in foster care and create a federally funded national girls initiative for girls in foster care. These are important recommendations made by the very youth who have been in the foster care system. They have the firsthand knowledge of what they've experienced and what kids that they know who have been in foster care have experienced. We need to listen to them to help make the changes. I hope I was able to teach you something new today. Uh, indeed, the foster care system while useful in some ways, has been harmful in others. We need to keep the good and replace the, the not working areas in order to help these kids. So I hope you can go out and do something to help make life better for these kids and therefore for our society. Thank you.